to a special edition of the Noon Report. I'm your host, Bob Price, and we're setting aside our regular programming today to bring you a New Year broadcast. Over the next half hour, we'll delve into some of the issues impacting our health, our politics, and our pocketbooks in the year 2024. So let's jump in with politics. I spoke recently with political pundit Dr. Steve Coleman about this year's race for president. Here's some of that conversation. Dr. Coleman, it is so great to have you on with us. Happy New Year, my friend. And uh, the new year means uh, the 2024 presidential election is off and running. We are less than two weeks away from the Iowa caucuses, Steve. Polls show most voters do not want a Biden-Trump rematch, but it may happen. Here is a synopsis of what some voters in Iowa are saying today, Steve. I want to get your reaction to this on the other side. Take a listen. If the rematch happens between Trump and Biden, I think that that's a total loss for the country. Nothing will galvanize the Democrat electorate more than Trump being the candidate. Even against Joe Biden, who probably couldn't win against anybody but Trump. These are probably the two most unpopular figures at this point in time to be the potential nominees for president ever. I'm a Republican. I think anyone not named Trump beats Biden in a landslide. Trump brings way too much baggage and makes it too much about himself. Biden's health and cognition looks to be in question. Example of what voters are saying, Steve, with just a couple weeks to go before the Iowa caucuses. So the question is to you, if polls show voters don't want a Biden-Trump rematch, why does it seem like that cake is baked already? Well, it looks as if, uh, Bob, Donald Trump is way ahead of his competitors on the Republican side, and Joe Biden has real no opposition on the, uh, the Democratic side, so it looks like it's going to be Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. That's going to be the situation here in 2024. All right, we've seen this movie before. We'll see it again, according to Steve. Uh, now, what's unique to this presidential cycle is the many trials of Donald Trump. We're expecting a verdict soon in his civil fraud case in New York. There's a trial on election interference. It's about to get underway in March in Washington, D.C. You've got the trial in Georgia. How will these many trials of Donald Trump impact this election cycle? I don't think it's going to impact it very much. Donald Trump has 91 felonies, 91 felonies he's charged with. But at the end of the day, I think uh, all of this is going to help Donald Trump because uh, Republicans feel that the legal system has been weaponized against Donald Trump, and it's an outrage to America, and they're going to give their verdict at the ballot box uh, this November. Yeah. You know, there was a poll last month that I thought was interesting. Wall Street Journal poll had Trump up on Biden four points, but that same poll had Biden losing to Nikki Haley by 17 points. You talk about Trump enjoying the overwhelming support of Republicans, but isn't it that independent vote that's going to matter this year, Steve? And can Trump get that? Or is there another one of those candidates like a Nikki Haley who would be better suited for getting that coveted independent vote? Well, Nikki Haley has gotten a, a bump from the base. 
but not as much of a bump as a lot of pundits are saying. And Donald Trump um, is going to get the um, Republican nomination. He's way ahead of Nikki Haley. This will be shown by the end of March. Uh, this will be fact, not just speculation, but fact. Mm. Donald Trump will be well on his way to the Republican nomination, no matter what happens to Nikki Haley. Gotcha. So it looks like he's running away with things in Iowa. So it's all it's between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis at this point in Iowa. If Nikki Haley comes in second and Ron DeSantis comes in third. Does Ron DeSantis need to get out of this race? Do you think he'll get out of this race if he doesn't come in second in Iowa? No, I think he's uh, looking to New Hampshire to gain some momentum, so uh, stay tuned for that. And you are pretty sure it's bited. There's talk that there may be a wild card on the Democratic side that would be announced if Biden decides early this year that he's not up for a second term. How realistic is that, Steve? Joe Biden has wanted to be president his entire life, and now he is the president, and he's unlikely to bow out. Even if bowing out were for the good of the country, Joe Biden is unlikely to do that. He loves being president. He's always wanted it, and he'll be staying, in my opinion. Gotcha. Uh, Nikki Haley made news by saying that the president, whoever that person is, should pass a mental competency exam after they achieve a certain age. Um, that got frowned on by a lot of people. What do you think? I mean, that's been the biggest Achilles heel so far uh, when you look at uh, both Trump and Biden. There are a couple of older white guys. The age issue has become a major issue out on the campaign trail. What do you think of Nikki Haley's proposal? I think it's a, a can of worms. Uh, Bob, is it going to be a, an essay test or a multiple choice? Who's going to put the exam together? And uh, will it be timed? Uh, you know, it's, it's, again, a can of worms. I think Nikki Haley's a very smart woman. But I question her intelligence for coming up with this can of worms. Gotcha. Uh, well, you know, if Trump continues to run w away with it in, in Iowa and then New Hampshire, if he wins big in those states, we'll see how the field uh, thins out. You know, folks are saying Chris Christie, Vivek Ramaswamy, their days may be numbered. There's a, a gal out in Wyoming named Liz Cheney who says, okay. hey, I may run as a third party candidate if it looks like Trump's going to get this thing. She predicts a Trump reelection will end democracy as we know it. A direct quote from Liz Cheney um, saying that he will never give up power after his term is over. Does she have reason to be concerned about Trump the dictator or is this a classic case of Trump derangement syndrome? Well, I think she has reason to be concerned, but saying that if Donald Trump goes back to the White House, it's going to be the end of democracy. I think that's an overreach. Look, uh, Liz Cheney hates Donald Trump, and so whatever she says, you have to take with a big, big, big grain of salt. Gotcha. And then, you know, my big question is this. All of the baggage surrounding President Trump, regardless of how you feel about him as a leader, so much baggage around him. Why haven't any of the other contenders, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, or Chris Christie, why haven't they been able to gain any ground on the Donald. I think many Republicans think that Donald Trump's competitors, well, they're the junior varsity squad. Donald Trump 
is to many Republicans, as Mick Jagger is to folks that like rock and roll. They think he's wonderful. They think he's great. And all these other folks running against Donald Trump are second rate, have no chance, and frankly should get out of the race. Well, hey, the first votes of 2024 are about to be cast. Final analysis. The cake is baked. Take it to the bank. It's the rematch. Trump versus Biden in 2024. You're going with that, Steve. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think it's going to happen. It's We're on the way, and we're now in 2024. By the end of March, we'll see it very clear what's going on, Bob, but mm-hmm. uh, that's my prediction. All right. Well, hey, hang on to your hat, Steve. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Uh, we'll see where this year takes us, and uh, of course, you know, so much at stake, not just the presidential race, but control of Congress, the U.S. Senate. Uh, should be a very interesting 2024, and we thank you for getting out your crystal ball, Steve, and giving us your political predictions. Bob, thanks for having me on. I want to wish you and all the great folks at Sam Blue Life and all the great people in your audience a very happy new year. Happy 2024, everybody. That is Dr. Steve Coleman, a political pundit from the Southern Tier, talking about the upcoming race for president this year. If you're just joining us, this is a special edition of the Noon Report. The new year means new year resolutions. And tops on that list for a lot of people is a desire to lose weight and get in shape. Family Life Sarah Harnish is chatting with a Christian fitness expert about how you can achieve that new you in the new year. We ate the turkey, we ate the cookies, all of them, and now we're starting another year not happy with where we're at. With me is a very gifted guy in all things faith and fitness and fortitude. His name is Tom Nicola. Hi, Tom. Hi. You run a blog that goes to thousands of people on health and fitness. And you run an online personal training program, and you love Jesus. I do. (laughs) You were in a bike accident, though, that almost took your life. You also are quite knowledgeable about recovery. Can you tell me your story? Yeah, I think I got interested in health and fitness because I had leukemia when I was a kid, and so we spent a lot of time at the Mayo Clinic. And over the years, I got interested in medicine, and then at some point after college or during college, I decided that I wanted to help people stay healthy instead of help them after they got sick. And that kind of led me into health and fitness. What happened in that bike crash? We were out mountain biking. I just went off a bridge. My front tire kind of dumped off a bridge and it was just high enough that by the time the front tire hit the ground, I was completely vertical and went head first straight into the ground and um, broke my neck. Fortunately, there was no rotation. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have survived it. But um, I did have some immediate paralysis, some significant spinal cord injuries. And the doctors said it would take a good year or so before I'd be back to doing normal things. But uh, I threw everything that I knew at it and recovered pretty fast. Within about six months, I was able to do the majority of things that I'd been doing before. Actually, I went back to the gym three days after I got out of the hospital just because I knew how important it was to be moving whatever muscles I could at the time. And I recovered relatively fast, faster than the doctors uh, had said. But it was uh, definitely a time of accepting a lot of prayers from people and praying myself and just knowing that uh, God definitely protected me in that moment that my head hit the ground because it could have been far worse than it ended up being. You're a walking miracle. <laughs> this is the beginning of a new year, and every single year we say the same thing. I'm going to start at the gym, I'm going to be faithful with supplements, 
and I'm going to stop my Starbucks. And then by February, it's like we never said a thing. Why does taking care of your body matter to God? Because it really is an act of discipline and self-control. Well, the Bible references our bodies as temples and calls us to take care of them, but that can also be taken to an extreme where someone focuses only on fitness as a means of looking good and they're doing it just for themselves. So there's there's kind of a fine line there and I don't see that extreme as biblical, but I've always seen the reason to remain fit and healthy as a way to make the most of our calling to serve others and use the gifts that God's given us and blessed us with. So when we let our bodies go, our minds tend to go with them. We can't think as clearly, we can't function as well. And so we lose some of that power that God blessed us with and calls us to to use the gifts that uh, he's given us with. So I really kind of feel like we're not able to serve the world and contribute to the world at nearly the capacity that we ought to be able to if we're not taking care of ourselves. So I think of it as more of a, from a service perspective than a selfish being about me and how I feel and look and that kind of thing. I just spent the last year battling advanced uterine cancer and they told me that I had to get my body fat percentage under 30% because estrogen-led cancer will hide in fat. And I am a cardio girl. So this year I had to learn weightlifting and now I use machines and I lift four days a week and I'm actually at a lower weight than I was back in my 20s. So what are your best weightlifting tips for beginners? I'll just provide one because I think this is the most important and that's to expect to get uncomfortable. So the whole point of weight training is to push yourself beyond what it's current physical limits are. And that's one of the reasons that people avoid it is because it's uncomfortable. So we often look for what's easy and comfortable and our bodies are made to grow stronger and healthier through physical stress, not by being comfortable and sedentary and and not, not moving and not lifting heavy things. So you have to be willing to embrace that. Otherwise, people start to even kind of fear or just get deterred from going in and doing resistance training. And there's nothing more powerful from a health and longevity standpoint than muscle building, than the ability to have lean body mass and muscle mass as we age. So in terms of exercise, resistance training is absolutely the most important thing that we could be doing. Two words that you knew were going to make this interview, weight loss. (laughs) What is the single most important thing that you can do? Is it diet? Is it mindset? Is it accountability? It's to eat more protein, which is probably not what most people are going to expect to hear, but protein has such a significant impact on blood sugar control, on satiety, on body composition. One study after another just shows that when people eat more protein in their diet, they tend to maintain a better weight. And if they're overweight, they lose weight easier. So we get fixated on carbs and fat and a whole bunch of other things. But the reality is that when people eat more protein in their diet, they tend to manage their weight on a much healthier level. If you're just joining us, I'm talking to Tom Nicola, fitness guru. You can find him online at TomNicola.com. Here's my last question for you. Can you talk about the faith side of fitness? What does the word say about your body? We teased it a little bit earlier, but I want to know why does it matter? Give me a reason to stick with my goals this year that I can hold in my heart. Well, from a personal standpoint, obviously the Bible says that our bodies are temples and a way of reflecting God. So if we're not taking care of our our bodies, we're not caring for the thing that God has blessed us with. So that's number one. But that's not going to motivate a lot of people, I don't think. A lot of times people are more driven by helping others and serving. And the reality is that we can serve and contribute and do more for the world if our bodies are functioning at an optimal level, which means our brains are going to be working at an optimal level. So whether we 
have desk jobs or we're doing something physical, if we take care of ourselves, it's going to make whatever career we have and whatever contributions we can make a lot more significant than what we can do when we're not healthy and that's it. And that includes the contributions to the kingdom, right? I always say you, you can't do what you're called and created to do when you don't feel good. That's right. That is fitness expert Tom Nicola on this special New Year's edition of the Noon Report. I'm your host, Bob Price. And coming up after the break, Family Life's Mark Webster will talk dollars and cents in the new year. Stick around. Welcome to Breakpoint, a daily look at an ever-changing culture through the lens of unchanging truth. For the Colson Center, I'm John Stone Street. The presidents of Harvard University, the University of Pennsylvania, and MIT all refused to condemn calls for Jewish genocide as being bullying or harassment. While horrible anti-Semitic speech and behavior have long been defended on their campuses, this debacle occurred before the U.S. Congress. The presidents attempted to appeal to free speech rights, differentiating between speech and conduct via statements that were obviously crafted by their lawyers. Their comments shocked and outraged many. Pence president, after initially attempting to walk back her comments, resigned. Harvard's president quickly apologized, while the MIT Board of Directors issued a statement in support of their president. A survey conducted last year by the College Fix found that 33 out of 65 academic departments across the nation lacked a single Republican professor. Given this virtual monopoly, progressive academics should be confident enough to allow dissenting voices on their campuses every now and then. However, we've seen now years of conservative speakers being canceled and shouted down. It's now clear that many progressives only really wish to hear their own voices. And some professors have even resorted to denouncing free speech as a kind of threat to their campus dominance. Recently, a pair of faculty members from Arizona State University wrote an essay in the Chronicle of Higher Education. It was entitled, and I'm not making this up, quote, Dear administrators, enough with the free speech rhetoric. It concedes too much to right-wing agendas. In the piece, Richard Amesbury and Catherine O'Donnell argue that, quote, calls for greater freedom of speech on campuses, however well-intentioned, risk undermining college's central purpose, end quote. Which, according to them, by the way, is, and I quote again, the production of expert knowledge and understanding. In their view, not all opinions ought to be heard, even opinions from dissenting experts, because not all opinions, they say, are equally valid. According to these professors, opinions that are valid are, and I quote again, the product of rigorous and reliable disciplines like the humanities, disciplines that include and often prioritize the study of race and gender. We should no more expect a humanities department to hire a dissenting voice, they argue, than a biology department to hire a creationist or a geography department to host a flat earther. In other words, woke ideologies are now above questioning, according to these professors. This not only is an example of circular reasoning, but the result is an echo chamber, not an education. Polling confirms that institutions of higher learning are suffering right now from a public credibility crisis. According to a recent Gallup poll, just 36% of Americans hold confidence in higher education, which is down 21 points since 2015. It's impossible to look at what's happened on campuses over the last decade or even before Congress just last week and not conclude that this has more than a little to do with the so-called products of the left-wing so called experts. Ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. And few institutions have propagated as many bad ideas and spat them into our society as our universities. Among the needs of the hour is the proliferation of Christian scholarship, of Christian higher education. I'm hopeful that last week's debacle before Congress is for Christian higher education what the 2020 school board videos and COVID online classrooms became for Christian K-12 schools, the best marketing they could have. 
However, that'll only be a win if the Christian colleges are truly Christian, truly colleges, and truly Christian colleges. And unfortunately, that seems to be a shrinking group of institutions. May God continue to raise up men and women willing to seek and speak truth, no matter how many so-called experts are telling them to shut up. For the Colson Center, I'm John Stone Street with Breakpoint. All right, John, thank you. Welcome back to a special edition of the Noon Report. I'm your host, Bob Price. And before we get to Mark Webster, let's talk real quick about some important issues making headlines in Albany and Harrisburg this year. The Capital Connection crew joins us, Michael Gear at the Pennsylvania Family Institute and Jason McGuire at New Yorkers for Constitutional Freedoms. Here's what they're keeping an eye on in Albany and Harrisburg in 2020. We've got an important presidential election, of course, coming up next year. But I just want to spend a couple of minutes with you guys talking about what you think will be the news items to watch from a faith and family perspective. Michael, what are you keeping an eye on next year that our listeners need to be paying attention to? Well, a big fight in Pennsylvania in this coming year is going to be on the issue of marijuana. You know, we've seen uh, the bad rollout in New York, in Pennsylvania. We do not have legalized uh, recreational marijuana, but that is going to be the upcoming fight, probably starting as soon as the legislature is back and at work. Gotcha. And then, uh, Jason, you'll get the last word on this one. As you look out across the landscape, what do you think will be the stories we're talking about in 2024? Well, with everything coming to the November ballot, most of the year will be spent on messaging around that on both sides of the aisle. We believe that on that ballot, there will be this equal rights amendment, the so-called equality amendment, and that, again, will really virtually eliminate many parental rights in New York State. So that will be the battle to come. It will be an abortion and parental rights discussion really for uh, the entire year of 2024. That is the Capital Connection crew, Jason McGuire with New Yorkers for Constitutional Freedoms and Michael Gear at the Pennsylvania Family Institute. Now we wrap up today's broadcast with a conversation about your money. Family Life's Mark Webster speaking with Sean Rittenauer, a professor of economics at Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania. As we head to 2024, what do you think we're going to see? Is it going to be another roller coaster ride or a little smoother? In the near term, it is going to be a roller coaster ride. I think that on the one hand, uh, there's some positive, you know, some positive information related to jobs, and on the other hand, um, you know, there's still a significant amount of financial insecurity. In terms of the broader economy, uh, there's a lot of things that are looking, and on the production side, things aren't looking as rosy as, as people might think. The Philadelphia Fed's manufacturing index is running in recession territory. Uh, temporary jobs have been down year over year, which often indicates an approaching recession. And I would say that, I would note anyway, that bankruptcy and default rates are rising. So I think that there's still, there's still, it's a mixed bag. And um, in terms of next year, um, I, I personally think that the amount of inflation and distortions in the economy created by that from the past, and monetary inflation I'm talking about now, I think actually sets us up for, um, uh, from, for a downturn uh, coming mid to late next year. So I, I, my you know, timing is always extremely difficult. But um, I think that the Fed is going to try to stave that off. 
but I'm not as optimistic as a lot of people are about what the future is going to hold next year. Hmm. Yeah, let's talk about the Fed there. I mean, they backed off the interest rate hikes uh, toward the end of the year, and it looks like, from what I've heard from them most recently, that they're probably going to keep their foot off the brake for a little while. They've even talked a little bit about starting to cut rates. Uh, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, I think that, that that is what they would like to do. I think that they are uh, seeing some of these uh, things I just mentioned, the bankruptcy default rates uh, rising, um, the uh, certain manufacturing indexes uh, turning uh, negative or or not as uh, not as positive as they had been. So I think that what they think is uh, it's time to stand pat, and I do think that they are planning, at least now, it looks like they're planning on lowering interest rates, the federal funds rate, their target rate by a quarter of a percent uh, three different times So they're uh, over the course of 2024. So they are hoping to, um, to lower interest rates, but that, of course that means increasing the money supply again, which means bringing back uh, the price inflation rates. And the price rate of price inflation has not yet got down to the level that they would desire. So I think they're still in in a in a bind, uh, but um, I, I, that's why I think it's going to be it's going to be it's going to be up and down. Um, I can see us continuing with sort of a relatively stagnant economy and higher prices come the end of next year. At the average consumer level, and all, all this is kind of esoteric and in the background, but as we just heard, there's a lot of a lot of balance, a lot a lot of moving parts to how this is all going to work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think what uh, a lot of people a lot of people see, th- well, a lot of the media will just focus on uh, sort of uh, symptoms and effects. They look at unemployment rates at any given moment. They look at uh, the level of prices at any given moment, and they look at they look at government GDP numbers. And when when those when the GDP numbers look up, everything looks great. But um, there's different reasons for why GDP might be uh, going up if there's an increase in consumption without an increase in production. That would be uh, an indication that we are sort of spending some past savings and uh, that might allow us to live better in the short run, but over time it's not going to be sustainable. And that that's my biggest concern is that we have built uh, an economy on uh, debt and monetary inflation and, and that type of that type of um, production, that type of economy is never sustainable in the long haul. Sounds like a bit of a house of cards. Yes, that's a good way to put it. Down at the consumer level, uh, I think what people feel the most besides the interest rates we talked about is inflation, which yes. eased a bit, perhaps in, in some sectors, but it's still it's still up there. And, and so I think it's probably one of the prime concerns for, for consumers and, and as we head into 2024 for voters. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the prices, the, the rate of price increase has still never uh, got down to even where the Fed wants, uh, let alone prices beginning to decline. I mean, we've recently had some decline in energy prices, which is which is good for us. But uh, overall, uh, the level of overall prices still is running at about an annual rate of three, uh, somewhere between two to four percent, and that's that's. Not what that's not even what the Fed wants. So uh, the, the only way the only way to stop that is for 
the Federal Reserve to continue not to inflate the money supply. But if they move next year to lower interest rates, the only way they do that is by injecting more money into the economy, which will fuel increases in spending, which increases the demand for goods, which increases the prices of goods. And so we'll have inflation all over again. A lot of people, of course, been keeping track of their portfolios as they get closer to retirement age. And they saw the Dow you know, hit a new high here as we uh, hit December. How is the uh, water going to be for people as they, as they watch that aspect of their financial picture? Oh, man, that's... That's a good question. I it, That's hard to say. Um, a lot of it does depend on what the Federal Reserve does with interest rates and with the money supply. And then also, you know, in some sense, how, how they react. I, I think that the recent increase in uh, stock prices, partly due to uh, people uh, starting to f- maybe feel a little bit better, uh, listening to the Fed and, and anticipating drops in the interest rates in coming uh, months, and so they had money on the side that they are pouring into uh, financial assets, including stocks. How it's going to pan out, it kind of depends on whether or not we do hit recession next year. If, if, if we hit recession, then um, those stock values are going to have to come down because stock values essentially are reflections of uh, future expectations of the value of assets of firms, and if it becomes apparent that firms are losing money money, um, you, you can't sustain higher higher prices on stocks either. So that, I think, in, in many ways is, is the hardest thing to judge. So we've got kind of a mixed picture heading into the year, it sounds like. What are some of the factors that could tip the scales one way or the other? Things that come to my mind, it's an election year, that seems to influence things sometimes. And also the global turmoil we have right now, war in the Middle East, which could affect energy prices. Uh, what, what are some of the main factors you're keeping an eye on? Well, those are all important. Important factors. Um, anytime you have the international conflict in areas where there's a lot of uh, oil and energy uh, being produced, that can really snarl things up. Could cost certainly increases in, in, in energy prices, and that has an effect of increasing costs uh, throughout the economy. In terms of the, the the broader the broader economy, the thing I watch the most is uh, what's going on uh, with the Federal Reserve and what are they doing with the money supply. If they keep reducing the money supply or slowing the growth of money supply, that would make it harder for any type of um, uh, economic boom to continue, but it would also allow us to get more on a solid economic footing. So there's a, we, we've sort of painted ourselves into a corner where things look good. You can make things look good with inflation for a while, but then the chickens come home to roost. And the chickens are trying to come home to roost, but the Fed's wanting to push them off a little bit. And it's, um, it's so, so that's, what I, that's what I pay attention to. But um, also just the amount of, uh, so the amount of regulation intervention in the economy that the, uh, that the government wants to get into the more regulation, the more they try to prop up inefficient firms, the more they try to regulate very efficient firms, uh, the harder it is for entrepreneurs to allocate uh, factors of production efficiently so that you know, the, 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 the more efficient that we are, the more productive we are, the more prosperous we will be. And 
and as the, the, the government intervenes with various regulatory measures, uh, that makes us uh, less productive and uh, over time will lead to relative impoverishment. So those are the things that I kind of look at. Talking dollars and cents, that's Sean Rittenauer, a professor of economics at Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania. And with that, we are out of time for this special New Year's edition of the Family Life Noon Report. For the entire Family Life News team, Mark Webster, Sarah Harnish, Greg Gillespie, and Martha Manikis Foster. I'm Bob Price. Have a safe and happy New Year.